blessed time of the year. I think that song, O Holy Night, is the one I play the most, listen to the most. All kinds of people singing it. And so proud of Paul. He doesn't have a voice, and he still hit that note. So I have a voice, and I'm not going to attempt it. I know you talk about boldness, but it's so good to be together, isn't it? It's a very special time of the year, and we're so grateful to be a part of this body of believers and the privilege of serving here. And my prayer is that this be a, a blessed day, a blessed season for you, that more than any other, that we treasure the things that, that God has done for us and that uh, is very, very meaningful for you. Now, I was thinking back to <clears throat> a number of years ago, Diane and I just graduated from school. She finished her undergrad. I finished my grad work, and we got married the next Saturday. So from Saturday to Saturday, went on a brief honeymoon, uh, went out to visit her folks, my folks, her folks again. And uh, about a month later, we land in Colorado, and we were going to start a church. We're just kids back then, and uh, we smile when you think about some of those things. Well, we're looking for a place to live. And so right across the street from McDonald's in Broomfield, there's a place called Garden Center Apartments. It is still standing, uh, I'll have you know. And uh, we found a furnished, little furnished apartment. We, we can't, when we moved out here, everything fit into our car. We didn't have a trailer. We didn't have something stuck on the top. You try to move us now, <laughs> even though we've gotten rid of things, there's a lot. It, life gets a lot more complicated. The older you get, the more stuff you have. But we moved into this little furnished apartment. And I bought myself my first piece of furniture, a little bookcase at Kmart, put my books on there. And uh, we were getting started to our, our new married life. Well, one Sunday afternoon, early in September, we were just sitting around the table having our lunch after church. We just started uh, a church down there. And all of a sudden, we hear this screaming I mean, not just one person screaming, many people screaming, and the building began to shake, and we were terrified. And I jumped up, and I, I went, and I looked out the window, and we lived in a, they call it garden center. It's not much of a garden, but in the middle is a grassy area, and so it's a big square, and so you can look and see all the windows of the other apartments. And we saw people jumping and moving and running, and we, we were just didn't know what to do. And it took a little while to realize that the Broncos had just scored a touchdown. <laughs> so I thought, we've got to get into this. Felt deprived. We don't have a television. And uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of celebration. And we have many causes for celebration or sorrow, depending on what team you're voting, uh, cheering for this year. But uh, there is when we celebrate a cause and then an effect. Something causes you to celebrate in that way. Something happens. And it can be, as I was sharing last week, that we focus more on the celebration and forget what the cause is. Now, 2,000 years ago, something happened that caused a celebration that would last for centuries. And it is, it is, even today, the most celebrated time of the year. But we can tend to lose the idea of what is the cause. 
Now, last Sunday, we walked through the story of shepherds and the, the whole, the majority of the part of Luke chapter 2. This morning, what I'd, what I'd like for us to do is to look at the one verse, verse 11 of Luke chapter 2, that is the cause for all of the celebration, everything that flows out of that. So I'd like to, for us to just to open up that one verse and explore what it is saying to us. It is Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, or the Christ, the Lord. So when you look into this verse, and it's always a good way to study the Bible, is to ask questions. I hope you do that when you read God's Word. You ask questions. There's nothing, that's not an offense to God, to question. Sometimes you see those bumper stickers, question everything. I think that's a good way to approach your Bible. I'm not sure the intent, what they said, and what we're saying is the same. But to ask yourself some questions. So I'd like to, again, approach this verse by asking some of these. First, what exactly happened? What exactly happened? Well, a child was born. A child was born. And I don't think there's anything that gets us more revved up, more excited then when a baby's born, we've had that happen here in our church uh, this last year. Families experienced the new birth of a child. And you can probably remember back, if you're a parent, a grandparent, you remember back to the birth of your first child, how excited you were, how much you would celebrate. They have a birthday. You celebrate that every year. You buy gifts. You buy presents. It's a very exciting day. I remember when our daughter was born, I, I could hardly contain myself. I just wanted, I I would start telling people I didn't even know. And I know they probably didn't even care. But I was so excited to be a dad and to have a family. And everything as a result about our lives changed. Everything changes when you bring a new one uh, into your home. I remember the last. We have three children. Remember the last one, which was a surprise. And... um, And you, know, you ever get that when, you, when uh, maybe this has happened to you, you go, oh. <laughs> and then you start to realize, well, here they come, and just as exciting. You have, you have the celebration, the joy, the thanksgiving, the praise. And that is exactly what took place here in this story. And few things could be more exciting for us or for Joseph and Mary. But particularly for this couple, uh, there was probably more excitement, and I might even use the term more drama (laughs) with this at the time of the birth of their son. Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire that really ruled the earth, had decided he was going to take a census. Now that sounds innocent, doesn't it? I'm going to take a census. (laughs) We're just going to count the number of people. But he had a motive behind it. There were, there were a couple of motives in that day when an emperor would take a census. One would be to, to assign people to the military. And so everybody would have a uh, required military service. But in this case, Jews were not required to serve in the military, but they were required to pay tax. <laughs> and so you think, how do we ever get away from that? But this is what he did. So he, he said, everyone will need to go to your hometown. And that means where you were born, where you grew up, where your family roots are. 
and there you're going to pay a tax. Well, Mary, Mary and Joseph were uh, betrothed. We don't use that term. It doesn't really mean engaged the way we have engaged because engagements can be broken. Basically, uh, when you're betrothed, it's, it's like as solid as a marriage. But there's a period of time that you wait before that marriage is consummated. And so she becomes pregnant while they're betrothed, which that immediately is going to strike some awkwardness into this because of what people are going to ask. What the story does tell us, that, that the father of this child is God, the seed of the Holy Spirit. She was miraculously um, going to give birth to a son. But how is everyone else going to understand that? She's great with child, which means, you know, you understand, the women that uh, are about ready to deliver are great with child. <laughs> and, um, and so Joseph has to travel. I'm not sure that Mary had to do this. This was for the men to do. And I sometimes wonder why did she go. I think probably he wanted her to go to protect her. I think there could have been a lot of persecution, a lot of people saying things, doing things, um, because they were in this condition. But nevertheless, they traveled together to go to the city or the town of Bethlehem. Now, for us, we were familiar with that little town. Uh, we, we call it a little town of Bethlehem. It, it's, in a sense, obscure part of Judah. And yet, this is Joseph's hometown. It is also the hometown of David. So when we talk about the city of David or the same place, and this was prophesied by the prophet Micah that said, in this little town, in this little obscure town, this is going to take place. And this is where they land. And so people are trying. Can you imagine this, that if, that if our government or whoever's uh, in charge in Washington right now, <laughs> were to say to us, okay, everybody to your hometown. Can you imagine what the holidays would be like? Where would you go? Let's name some towns. Where are you, where are you from? Okay, Gunnison. Okay, everybody, everybody, when I say three, tell me what town you were born in. One, two, three. Okay, that would scatter us a lot. <clears throat> I would be going to Oakland, California, garden spot of America. You say, well, what's in Oakland? I don't know. <laughs> in fact, Oak Knoll Naval Hospital, where I was born, does not exist. I, in fact, I, I said, who do I know? I don't know anyone in Oakland. Uh, I have no family, no friends. I uh, don't know anybody, but I do know there's a landmark that can prove I was there, and that's not there. But on my passport, it will forever say while I'm alive, Oakland, California. Because my dad was stationed there. We, we moved 11 times before I went to college. Now, before you feel sorry for me, I was very blessed with a great family. And to me, home was where mom was, where mom was doing the cooking. Dad provided the leadership, the security. But it was, it was quite an adventure. Because just about every year or two, we were picking up and moving to places like Turkey. I lived in Japan. So when people ask me, so where are you from? 
And I think, well, um, now I've lived probably most of my life now, or close to most of my life in Colorado. And a uh, little stint, Wisconsin, but, uh, you know, been in Japan, I've been in Turkey, been in Rhode Island, been in Virginia, been in Maryland, been in South Carolina, all those places. What's home for you? Well, Colorado is, but I still say Oakland, California. For my wife, Ottawa, Kansas. Uh, very famous place. It's kind of a special because she grew up the whole time pretty much in one small town. And uh, it was special. But can you imagine the chaos? So when they say there was no room in the inn, uh, there, there was basically no guest room any place. And so when they talk about where this birth took place, it was probably in one of the caves in the, in the hills around Bethlehem. That's where a lot of people would just stay, or shepherds would stay, others would stay. And so this is the, the circumstance. And so you can imagine all of the chaos, all the things moving around that were, were creating this drama for a child being born. And, and still, you can imagine the excitement, the joy, the happiness of holding that baby for the first time, just like many of you have held that, that baby or that grandchild for the very first time, that there is probably nothing that we celebrate more in our lives than this. So that, that's what's happened. A child is born. Now the second question is, who is this child? Who is this child? Now typically, we give our children names. And we usually think about it. Sometimes people think we didn't think about that, but we usually think about that. Uh, we, we joke around because there's always these very creative names. But typically what a parent will do is give a name to a child that is either a family name that they want to preserve and carry on, or it is a name of a, a Bible character that, um, that they really admire or a, a famous person that they would aspire their child to come and be like. And so a name will usually tell you a little bit of a story. Now, Jesus, I found, in looking through this, has about 50 names. <laughs> 50 names that describe him. But what is unique about this child, what is special about this child, are two particular names that I think uh, are have great meaning. In fact, this morning I was... I was reading Proverbs 22 because it's the 22nd. I typically read a psalm every morning and, and a proverb every morning. And um, the first verse of Proverbs 22 says, A good name is to be better chosen than great riches. And I thought, you know, that, that's a powerful statement. A good name is better than great riches. I thought, thank you, Lord, for the good name that uh, you've given to my, to my parents, to those that have influence on my life. So a name, a name has great weight and great power. But the two names that I would like to focus on that will tell us about this child, because this child specifically is cause for, you know, we, we have excitement over the, a child being born, but for 2,000 years, this is the difference. The first is Messiah or Christ. So often in the New Testament, we read Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Paul will use that all through. We read those terminologies. And what this is a description of is when you look at this baby, this child is God. 
This child is God. Not only is that miraculous, that is life-changing. That this, this is, this, there is nothing that has happened in human history that is more powerfully significant than this. This is God. But it's not, it should not be a surprise because even Isaiah the prophet said that a virgin will conceive, bear a son, and you shall call his name another name, Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. He goes on in chapter 9 to say, unto us a child is born, child. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. The weight, the burden be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now those verses may be familiar to you. But when you realize that these were written 700 years before this took place, that's why there were many at this time who were looking forward to the birth of this son. So this name, Christ, Messiah, Promised One, this is God. And the second name I want us to note is Jesus. Jesus. This is his name that he went by. Jesus in Hebrew, or in the Old Testament, we would translate Joshua. So the Old Testament, Joshua, is the same New Testament Jesus. And it means Jehovah, God, is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. But Jesus is the part that shows us that this is also a man. He is a man. He is God, and he is man. And this is unique. It, it is necessary. And I think that when you understand that of what needs to be accomplished and the purpose and reason, which is my third question that I will ask, and I always like asking this question, so what? <laughs> In fact, uh, someone told me that when you, whenever you preach a sermon, read a lesson, do something, ask yourself, so what? <laughs> so what? What is the significance of a God-man being born is this child. Well, he tells us in this verse. He says, born to you a Savior. A Savior. This is a Savior. To save what? Well, I think we would all agree this world needs saving. <laughs> it doesn't take long to turn on the television, walk around, and look in the mirror <laughs> to realize this world needs saving. And what is happening is that this God-man, this Christ Jesus, has come as a Savior. Now, what does he save us from? Um, earthquakes, natural disasters, save us from ourselves? Well, what stands out in my mind are two things that he saves us from is sin and death, from the destructive power of sin to destroy your life and death that will separate you from God from eternity. And this is the condition that he finds the world in. Jesus, who is God, comes to this earth. He is born God-man for this purpose to save us from sin, all our sins, and from death. And he does that by, he saves us from our sin by shedding his blood as atonement 
on the cross. This is very important to know because there is a way that he forgives the sin. He doesn't just say you're forgiven. He atones for it by the shedding of his blood on the cross to die in your place to wash away your sins. And secondly, the way he conquers death from overtaking every one of us, and he's speaking about physical and spiritual death. We're all going to physically die once. But he accomplishes this by his resurrection. So he comes, he lives a life, a perfect life. He's a great example. He's a great teacher. He is a prophet. He's all those things. But that's not the reason he came was to save you, to save this world. And this is who this is, this child, and the significance of what he has come. He is Savior. But secondly, it describes him as Lord. You notice this in the same verse. The last two words, he is the Lord. And when you speak of lordship, you speak of authority. And, and this is how it's described in Revelation. When we, when we see the conclusion and the consummation of all things, he is king of kings. And he is Lord of lords. No matter the power on this earth of Caesar or of anyone else, this child is king of kings and Lord of lords. And I love this because when you look at Savior and Lord, he's come to save you what would destroy you from sin and death. And he has everything in control. He's Lord. Everything's in control. When I think of lordship, I think of the bringing together all of the attributes of our God. He is holy and transcendent. He is eternal. He is all-powerful and all-wise, and He is kind and loving and merciful and faithful. And the list goes on. He is Lord. He's in control. And I think that when we recognize that and submit to that, our lives have an incredible amount of peace. When you fight against his lordship in your life. There's nothing but conflict. And you think about that. If he loved you, he created you, he sent his son to die for you, he wants to be Lord. And that is the greatest, greatest joy and the greatest truth that we find. All of these people. So he is Savior, and I, and I say he is sovereign. He is Savior, and he is sovereign. He is Lord of all the earth. One final question. When did you say this happened? <laughs> well, on December 25th. Now, I don't know exactly if it's exactly, but I think it works. <laughs> so you go back that far, was it exactly? People are, you know, exactly the 25th? I don't know. But it did happen. And there's more evidence of this in the life of Christ than, than any other thing in our history of proving this fact. But he uses this word today. Today. In the city of David, a Savior was born. This happened. And I think about, it's interesting about God because God, you would say, is timeless. He's timeless. He's eternal. God is not, uh, I don't see him looking at his watch and running or hurrying. God's timeless. But he created this world to function in time. He created the world to function in time. And 
Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that at the right time and the perfect time, God sent his son. Isn't that interesting? At, the, at just the right time. God was not worried about, oh, Caesar made this edict, and we've got we to gotta get married from Nazareth down to Bethlehem and then back to Nazareth, and then, and then Herod's going to want to destroy Jesus, and so they've got to flee. And, and the Lord is not, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? At the exact time, God sent his son. He sent his son. And I think of, of the power of this, that while God is timeless, there, there was a time, and there will be a time that he comes again. You know, we talk about the Advent, uh, the Advent season we celebrate. The church has since probably the 4th century A.D. The great themes of the Advent or coming of Messiah. And we've talked about those, hope and peace, and joy, and love. It's beautiful how that unfolds. But he will come again. The first advent is that God sent his son on the earth to accomplish this, Savior and Lord, for us. But he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he will gather all of those who have put their faith and trust in him to be with him forever in heaven. And those that have rejected him will have lost their opportunity. So that's why when you think about today, that, and I love what uh, in, the new, in, in the book of Hebrews, today is the day of salvation for you. See, how does this tie into to love? Because this is our last, our last topic, and I've waited to the end to say this. When you think about what he did for us, unto you, is born this day. It's not just the whole world, because he talks about this, the joy of all the earth, the whole world, that Jesus accomplished this for all the sins of all the people, of all the world, for all time. That is amazing. But it is equally amazing that he did this for you. And, and probably the most familiar verse in the Bible, and you know, this one, I never get tired of saying this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the love of God. And my prayer is this, that your season, this season of Christmas, may more than ever before, give you an appreciation for how much God loves you. That he would send his own son onto this earth to suffer the way he suffered, to die on a cruel cross for you. But not just thank him for that, but to believe and accept the gift that he's given to you. So Luke 2.11, this is the cause. It's bigger than a Broncos game. It's bigger than any other child is bigger than anything that has ever happened in human history that we celebrate. We celebrate, and you can see it everywhere you go in town, the celebration. But let's get back to the cause, the root. Because today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, our hearts are so full of thanksgiving and praise and gratitude to you for looking upon us in the state of our sinfulness and dying and sending your one and only to rescue us. We give you praise, we give you thanksgiving, and we worship you. And our prayer is that this good news, this story, this gospel would be sounded into every home this season and everyone who hears would believe. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.